and we got a ton of questions. All right, okay, let's let's begin. So this is I don't I don't know. We have we have a guest today that is I don't know how we got that guy. I mean, I just I I hunted him down on social media, and, and then he he actually responded. You know, usually just people people just block me, but this guy was gracious enough to say, "Yeah, yeah, I'll do it." Um, and uh, you know, they said that most podcasts don't reach episode three, and and uh, we still we still didn't. <laughs> we're we're on episode two, so we can still fail. Yeah, we can still fail. We fell forward, <laughs> like the government. No, I'm just gonna edit that out. Um, and um, yeah, we're we're you know we're getting there. So, so I'd like to thank uh, God and my agent, Agent Smith. <laughs> did you see? Did you see the last Matrix? Are you talking to me? Or are you talking? To, oh, you, you can't. To be you, can't you can't talk yet. People people <laughs> don't know who the guest is. All right, all right. Never mind, Josh. Did you did you see did you see the last Matrix? It was just silence. I didn't know what to do. Oh my god, that was that was a disaster, wasn't it? Talk, Nabil. All right. So let me let me let me let me introduce. You oh haven't given the, it up. You haven't told. This is already going sideways. This, this is already going sideways. I'm the mystery guest. Okay, the mystery guest. It, it's just going to be. Well, when you download a podcast, it's just going to say in the heading like Josh Hayes. And... <laughs> okay, all right. So let me let me introduce our next guest. <laughs> he is <laughs> he's three times Wira champion in uh, 1994, and then he turned pro in 1996. Uh, 1996 and 1997, Wira national endurance champion. 1998 Formula USA Pro Sport Champion. 1998 we are a National Challenge Series 600cc Super Stocks Champion. Won the 1997 uh, GSXR 1100 Suzuki Cup Final. Won the 1998 GSXR 1100 and GSXR 600 Suzuki Cup Finals. Won the 1999 AMA 750cc Supersport race at Daytona and finished the AMA season 3rd in Formula Extreme and 6 in 600cc Supersports points. I'm not done yet. Uh, 2003 AMA 750 Superstock Champion, WSM, WSMC Toyota 200 winner 2003, 2004, 2005. 2006 and 2007 AMA Formula Extreme Champion, four times AMA Superbike Champion on an R1, uh, 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2014. Finished seven in 2011 on a MotoGP bike, which it's unheard of. I mean, who who even gets to the top 10 on their first ride on a MotoGP bike? Uh, record holder for most Superbike wins in a single season with 16. Record holder for the most consecutive... <laughs> What's that? <laughs> Not anymore. Gagne took that from me this year. Don't worry. We'll take care of that. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, record holder for most consecutive Superbike wins in a single season with 10. Record holder for the most Superbike <laughs> pulls in a single season with 10. Might have that. Oh, my God. You, you have how, more achievements than a five-star general. Jeez. 
yeah, but you dug deep to come up with some of those. Uh, I, I did my research mainly because uh, <laughs> you're you're one of the first uh, writers that I saw live, um, and I saw you on the 2004 in the 2004 Toyota 200 Willow Springs, and <laughs> you you looked like you were going slower than anyone else and you won the race going slower than anyone else of course of course if you're really really fast it just looks like you're going slow yeah. right <laughs> i guess i don't know i was riding uh, richard stamboli's zx10 and that thing was a weapon but it also hated my guts so <laughs> i felt like a rag doll hanging off the handlebars behind it most of the time but oh. You know, I spent a lot of time, we, we used to get to do a lot more laps than we do these days. So I spent a lot of time on that motorcycle and Richard and I, I learned a lot at that time in my career and got some results with that thing. I led an AMA Superbike race on that bike. Crazy oh, enough. God. And, and you did 119.4, 119.6. I don't remember. It was pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good is an understatement. <laughs> we had a good run. Can't complain. Okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> an amazing career. A good run. And you're still 47 young, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm luckier than most. I got to have, uh, I, I, I had said for a long time, if I, if I could be a professional motorcycle racer till 40, that would be success. I'd be making it, you know, and I made it to 42. So. Even turning not, pro, pro. Not even the great Valentino Rossi made it past 42. He made it to 42. <laughs> <laughs> yeah That's i mean right. and you, yeah, and you started you started late in life right yeah i was um 19 yeah. so i graduated high school i was just a i got my first street bike as a senior in high school wheeled and dealed some really cruddy cars and got a motorcycle with a salvage title that i rode to high school and um yeah like uh i didn't know club racing existed and actually uh, the local shop that we hung out at a lot, uh, the, the owner's son went and did some wearer racing and I went with him to one of them and that kind of sparked that I, I, like I said, I didn't know it existed. And so I was working, I graduated high school and I thought, man, I'd really like to go do this as a hobby. And my parents were cool enough to be like, yeah, if you can pay for it, you can go have some fun. And somehow, somehow, like I had a lot of, had a lot of good people around me. There was a racer, uh, Grant Lopez, who was a fantastic racer and kind of took me under his wing and we traveled around. He lived in Mobile, Alabama. So I'd, I'd work Monday through Friday. I'd get to take Saturday off, but Friday I'd get off work and I'd drive to Mobile, Alabama with my mom's V6 Firebird in my motorcycle on a single rail trailer and load it into his van. And then we would drive. And the closest track was Little Talladega, which was a six-hour drive for us. The next one was uh, like Road Atlanta, which we didn't race that much, or Savannah, Georgia, which was a nine- to ten-hour drive. We drive all night, get there, park at the gate at, you know, God, four o'clock in the morning and five o'clock in the morning. And we would get out and crawl under the van and go to sleep on the ground until the gate opened, pull in, you know, ride Friday or Saturday and Sunday, excuse me. And then bust it home all night so I could be at work Monday morning and worked on my, I usually stayed at the shop. I'd, I'd do my job eight to five as a mechanic on watercraft. And then five 30, I would start working on my motorcycle. And I was usually there till eight to 10 o'clock at night, working on my motorcycle, getting ready and 
somehow through the years, you know, a, a lot of um, being in the right place at the right time, being around, meeting the right people. Um, and when, when I had to perform, I was able to come up with a good enough result that it, it kept finding me a way to survive. And one day they actually paid me. John Ulrich was the first one to pick me up on the M4, or well, at the time, the Babbling Suzuki team, and uh, give me a shot. And that was just an equipment deal. He's like, all right, you're already going racing, so here's what I'll do. I'll help you with a lot of equipment, and you go do the same thing you're doing and build and grow, and we'll see how you do. And eventually, I got lucky. Like I said, the timing was perfect. I grew into the big truck after three years of banging my head against the wall, you know, doing local stuff, wear stuff, chasing those amateur championships. Um, the, that team went full-time pro racing in 1999 and I grew into the big truck at the same time that that happened with Grant Lopez as my teammate. So, and, um, yeah, just worked my way through. It, it, it's kind of funny. I, I heard you say over and over again, I'm, I was very lucky to do this. So I was very lucky to do that. And my answer to you is always the harder you work, the luckier you get. And, and yeah, and you are the guy that works more than anyone, right? I'm not afraid of work. I'm not afraid of it. Where, where did you get that work ethics? Well, my dad, I would say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm lucky to have the parents that I had. My dad was a strong believer in work ethic. And uh, so I just, you know, but man, there's so many different things. Like I, I feel like I had a pretty strong understanding pretty early that I was getting to do something pretty privileged, you know? Even if I was working hard for it, I was doing something special. And if I wanted to make a splash in the world and I, I for whatever reason, motorsports made sense to me. Now, I wasn't the greatest talent with the most balance or any of those things, but I had enough of the right things. And I felt like a, a decent understanding of things that I was able to figure a lot of things out, sometimes the hard way, but figure it out before it killed me trying and so, yeah, you know, like I, I wasn't afraid to work hard. I knew what my life was going to be if it ever ended early, you know, like I, here I was high school educated and zero work history other than being a mechanic in a dealership. Um, my job prospects weren't real big. I wasn't going to go be a doctor or a lawyer at this point. So <laughs> I better find a way to make it work and get the most out of it. And, and quite honestly, you know, <clears throat> I remember Nicky Hayden as he was getting later in racing and somebody asking him about, you know, why do this, why do that? And he was like, I don't think anybody loves this more than I do. And I, I felt very strongly the same way that there wasn't anybody on the racetrack that wanted it as bad as I did. I was willing to work as hard as anybody for it. So I deserved it as at least as much as they did. I felt like if I was willing to put in the work and so I just tried to, to be a professional the best that I could. And, and, and you still do. I mean, I heard interviews with you when you say, hey, I'm just waiting for that call to come back. What's going <laughs> on, guys? And, and yeah. you kind of, you retired like Jay Leno retired, right? He stuck well, around just in case things don't, you know. Um, I love how, how in, in a thing called racing, we like to say retired. Like there are very few racers that truly retire from racing. You know, there's no 401k. You well, know? Like, can you really retire I, from a hobby? Right. I ran out of rides <laughs> is what I did. Um, and, and I, and I kept some loyalties, you know, maybe I may gave myself some limitations, but I'm 
I'm still, I, I don't have any regrets in any of that. I just, you know, when, when it, it broke my heart when Keith McCarty told me my future and could I have gone and tried to do something different or different way? Yeah, I probably could have if I really pursued it hard and found something else. But I had built a family and he was helping me do some other things. And Melissa and I were starting a family and there was a, there was a lot of things and it wasn't, it wasn't really a decision on my part. And I was, you know, I talk about being lucky. I was lucky enough to have a support system around me of like a wife that understood racing so well, because I never had a game plan for life after racing. Even when I knew my racing was about to be over, because, you know, the, the minute that you start having that plan and you dedicate, let's say a day a week to what the next thing is, when things get hard, at what you're trying to accomplish, you don't take that day back. You take and add more days to preparing for that future thing to make sure it's ready to go. And we had a pretty good understanding of that. So Melissa allowed me to, she was just like, you know what, we're going to figure it out. We're both smart. We're, we're going to be okay. And I just kept my head down and kept charging like it was my first season and I had nothing to lose. And um, still here I am four and a half years removed from it and I still feel it every day and, so and I, you, I have a love for it and you, know? you can you can come back at any time if you had a ride I mean if you look at bikes today right with all the electronics mm. it's no they're different and I got to experience here it here recently by getting to test the attack bike and kind of see the uh the development from when I left the team so When I left the team in, at the end of 2017, Cameron Bobier kind of stayed on the same spec motorcycle through, throughout, you know, what was that, 1819 and 1819. And then in 20, when it went to the Stamboli program, that's when the updates uh, to some newer technology type stuff kind of happened and uh, stuff that I hadn't experienced. But it stayed the same for quite a while. And so, yeah, I got to experience a little bit, but I can tell you physically, you know, to ride the motorcycles and be the professional. None, none of that stuff really changes. You still, I, the one thing that's changed for me is I now have a family and, and a lot of other responsibilities. The hardest part for me was on, on the Sunday at Barber in 2017, on Sunday afternoon, I was a pro superbike racer. And once in a while, I had to be a husband. And then on Monday, when I woke up, I was... A husband, soon-to-be father, coach, mentor, and once in a while they let me ride a motorcycle from yeah. one day to the next. And so uh, that's that's still to this day hard, you know. Like I want to I want to do something. I got to do something pretty special, and now whatever I do in life, I want to make sure that I'm that I'm actually contributing and making an impact in some way. So sometimes I'm still feel like I'm finding my place. But you're you're probably taking that racer mentality everywhere you go, right? You, I you think need, so. It's who I am. You need to win. <laughs> you need to win at everything you do, probably. Right? That, that attitude. But there's some. I, I can tell you honestly. Like I, there are things that have happened that I never would have believed. I, you know, I, I, I couldn't have imagined until it happened that when I helped a few of the guys, you know, when Garrett Gerloff won his first superbike race when uh, Cam Peterson won his championship, when Bobby Fong 
won a super sport championship in superbike races. I couldn't believe that how much satisfaction I felt by just being a part of someone else's success. But I did. Corey Ventura, who's going to ride for us this year, you know, uh, when he was doing the R3 program with Melissa, he was one of the best students I'd ever dealt with because he was an open book and willing to do anything. And so when I've been able to make a, a small contribution to much of anybody and see a result, I've, I've actually felt pretty good about it. But it, the hard part is that I, the people that I feel like I relate to are not the people who like to spend money for help to go racing because they're <laughs> at the top level. But that's the stuff that I feel like I, I have the best understanding of, you know, and whenever I'm, I'm brought back and I'm working with like a, a guy who does some club racing and track days, uh, I, I, I struggle because my, my picture of the world, my view, my mentality of how to attack something uh, probably isn't always the same idea that they want to go forward with. And I have to meter that. And that's not easy for me. So I start feeling that pressure of, am I contributing in a positive manner? You know, am I, am I helping yeah. this person move forward? Yeah. You, you turned from Luke Skywalker into Yoda, right? <laughs> Probably looks too. <laughs> I, I, was I, was, I wasn't going to say anything. Yeah. yeah. Look at that hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's coming in nicely. <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous if you can. <laughs> I see that. Is, is this a new thing? You can't be big in, in the racing industry unless your hair touches your shoulder? Uh, well, mine was more about Hawk, my son. You know, he's got big curly hair, and everybody's like, "Where did he get that?" So I said, "Well, I better, I better let it go a little bit." But we, we're going to have to make some decisions here soon because it gets irritating after a while. I mean, my neck is warm, so maybe I'll stick with it through the winter. That'll be kind of nice. My <laughs> my Mississippi mud guard here in the back, my neck warmer. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, we'll we'll see when it comes to the business time. For a lot of years there, I kind of gave up on it. I bought a bought a nice set of clippers with a metal number two blade and just because I figured it made me look mean and like I meant business. So, yeah, you you were fighting against a guy that had the same haircut, right? Sometimes, yeah. It, it's kind of yeah in the in the early days, yeah. And, and you yeah. beat him. I got a few. I got a few licks in there. Yeah, <laughs> I remember an interview with him when he just said at, at some point I just ran out of talent. Josh just made me run out of talent, and I, I never heard him say that about anything or anybody. Yeah, I I, I don't exactly remember that, but I, I remember it because I saw I, it. You know, like it was it was weird. I had a I had a a unique relationship with Matt. It wasn't we weren't close by any stretch. Like him and Pridmore were pretty close, you know. But we had respect, like for each other. I feel like we had conversations, and I, I heard the way he reacted to some other racers, and and uh, I wasn't I, I wasn't exactly a hothead, so I was able to kind of see through this and that. We had a respectful relationship. It, it was kind of funny because I heard a lot of writers uh, from that era complain that the Suzuki had had that unfair advantage of traction control, and uh, you know. I don't, I don't want to name names, but because uh, because he might come on the podcast, but uh, he lives there in Vegas. It was all of them, I yeah. think. It was yeah. everybody. Yeah, and and everybody were complaining that you know the Suzuki is like leaving lines, like uh, lines, and and the wheelies are controlled, and they have all this electronics, and you come in and you you turn everything off and you win. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah. yeah, I don't I don't need this. <laughs> well, that was a few years before I got to Superbike. So when they opened up the rules. Yosh kicked everybody's butt even worse. 
because everybody just tried to thought they could plug it in and make it work and they just went backwards yeah. and it was funny because the day the rules opened up we actually put traction control on our formula extreme 600s and it was the key to me winning the championship in 2006 on the Aryan honda but not for the reasons people believed you know i actually spun the tire twice as much with traction control because i i found a tool that i could use that kept me from getting kept the bike from getting away from me and when traction control is used properly that's what it is it allows you to spin the tire more spend more time at the very edge but not allow you to step over the boundary quite so easily so every time somebody says oh the tire's spinning i need more tc all you're doing is bringing your big fast superbike engine down to the level of your shitty tire so, <laughs> the the really fast guys tend to open it up and let it go a little bit more as they start you know when they have when well and part of that is because when you have a lot of grip and you add lean angle to it when you've got tons and tons of grip and you've got all this energy held up in that grip it becomes like a spring. It's got a lot of energy in it. And when it does release, it doesn't release in a very friendly way. So with a brand new tire, I want a much more aggressive traction control setting because when it goes, it's going to go fast and I need it to hit there to help me quickly. Where when the tire breaks loose early in a way that I can manage and control with my hand and know what to expect, all it's doing is holding me back at that point. So I don't want that traction control involved. The only reason I would want it involved would be to keep me to, from like spinning it up so far that I destroy the tire or can't catch it. Right. To keep me from overusing it. But I, when the bike spins, I actually felt like I could point the bike better and do a lot of things better. And so there's a lot of, I think, misconception about what traction control is and does and at that time, back in 2004, 2005, that was, a, again, a big thing. And I remember seeing those things of the, like the dashed lines in the pavement, and I was laughing because I'm like, no, that's called chatter. <laughs> you know, <laughs> TC doesn't do that. That's not how it works. I heard you in an interview also saying that you like to manage it by going higher in the RPM because there's less torque and the engine is closer to... Maximum. It was, well, that, that was a technique and it's motorcycle dependent. Uh, some motorcycles had a very steep torque curve and some had a very flat torque curve. But the idea being if let, let's say you have a 14,000 RPM rev limiter, right? If I spin the tire at 12.5, there's only 1500 RPM that the bike can gain before the rev limiter will help me. So the, the percentage of spin can't get too high, where if I spin the tire at 8,000 RPM with lean angle and it spins up to near 14, I can't catch it. The wheel gets going so fast that there's no opportunity for it to get grip again. So I, begot, I, I got a lot more comfortable at spinning the tire at high RPMs than I did if I was lugging the bike because the, it, it gave more opportunity for something that i couldn't catch does this still apply with with modern traction control systems with imus and slide control or yeah i would think so this is more about engine characteristic and and traction more than anything but 
I mean, the TC is there to help you. So now you can, you can do that throughout the RPM range and you can set the TC to act like the rev limiter and not catch you out so bad. But a bike can still be tied in knots or act badly when it, if it doesn't have a flat or linear torque curve. Mm -hmm. And has tire technology changed a lot during your career from what you were experiencing in the early days till now? Yeah, it's changed. Um, I mean, more than horsepower, the tires are where lap records come from most of the time, you know? Um, there's everything is, is about that connection to the road and the amount of grip that you have. That's our limit, right? So, um, but also the, the way in which you ride the motorcycles, uh, there was, you know, a couple, there, there were two distinct developments that I can remember. Um, when we went from the standard tires, uh, that Dunlop ran from the UK, to the Intech tire, which was in the early 2000s. Um, well, I want to say that Superbike started running Intechs, I want to say in 2004, maybe dipped into it in 2003. Um, and after a lot of the Daytona issues with the tires that would grow, the Intech was the no growth tire. So it was built in a way that it would not expand when we picked up a lot of RPM. And it, and it changed the gearing of every racetrack that you rode at. But the bike, it was okay on edge grip. But once you got it off the edge grip and kind of got some angle out of it, the thing was like a qualifier. It had insane drive grip. And uh, then when, the, when we went from the UK tires to the US made tires, there was another pretty distinct characteristic of change. And again, for me, it was like, Tire life was really good on the Dunlops on the rear. Um, there was a certain angle that you would get to that had insanely good grip. And then there was a, on the edge grip, I always thought like compared to other brands, they, they left a little on the table as far as just sheer edge grip. And um, you notice how many times he says the, the name of our podcast? <laughs> um, that the the correlation of the lean angle and where that was has kind of changed and developed over the different uh different like uh shapes uh and and casings that they've built in them um when the when we first started running the u.s rears i really struggled because the grip slip where it changed was at right at the angle where I wanted to be hundred percent throttle right at the wrong lean angle for me. So I had a lot of grip slip, grip slip, and it became a really violent bike to ride. And I struggled a little bit with that. And, uh, but that has improved. I actually got to do, do a test with some, some of that new stuff with the attack bike and, and man, they made some pretty good progress here recently. And I'm impressed with the stuff that they have and, it's amazing to me how they're how well they're able to hold up lap time wise over superbike race distance. Yeah, that's cool. So I wanted to go back a little bit to you still have great things about the psychology of, of being a racer and, and your career. And I think there's a lot of lessons there to derive even if you're in business or, or whatever industry you're in. Uh, but first question was when you, you started late. Uh, was it common in, in your generation of racers for people to start that late or, or like today, you know, they start as a three-month embryo in their mother's womb? And <laughs> <laughs> um, 
m- most of them were starting. I, I felt like younger than me. Most of the guys that were in pro racing, at least, were younger than me. Club racers, it was a mix of a little bit of everybody, but it was a younger group than it is today. I feel like today, it is definitely more of a middle-aged uh, people who have had kids and their kids are grown up and they can afford to go racing. You know, um, it was a younger crowd of people. Uh, more people in pickup trucks with a motorcycle in the back where now everybody's got a toy hauler or a bus or you know a big trailer i still do the pickup truck i mean we, we didn't have tire warmers you know when i started it was a much easier way i bought one set of tires a weekend and rode a production motorcycle with a stock pipe and some bodywork. the coolest part i had on my bike my first year racing was dennis kirk sold progressive fork springs racing fork springs I don't even know what rate they were, but I was like, oh, racing parts. And I put them on my bike and I raced for a season. And I raced in three-wave grids at tiny racetracks. So the amount of racing experience I got in a very short time was incredible. And I was like, I, I, I was, it was, everything lined up perfectly for me. I had great competition, even in my first year racing. And I learned so much that propelled me into the next step. And then I learned so much those next couple of years that prepared, prepared me and propelled me into pro racing. Like my, I, I, I dabbled in, in a couple of pro races prior to 1999, but I look at 1999 when I showed up at Daytona as my first, like my first true pro event, I was here to stay. We were doing the whole season This was race one of my commitment. This wasn't me dipping my toes in the water. I was here. And we had raced the weekend before for the CCS stuff. And then, so I was up to speed. I had won that weekend. I had gone a faster lap time than I had ever gone before. Everything was lining up perfect. But I knew, here we go. We show up the next weekend and there are 20. 26 probably factory and factory supported paid riders in 600 super sport there were a hundred people showing up for 80 spots on the grid and all hundred could make the qualifying cut so did, did you get those little butterflies and maybe i'm not oh, I was a wreck. And... i was a wreck and in the very first practice now back then there were so many people they split up practice groups for super sport and even in odd numbers I ran number 131, so I'm out in the odd-numbered group. And for whatever reason, it was just perfect. I rolled out with a guy I had only seen on TV and really only a couple of times because I didn't know much about racing when I started, Miguel de Hommel and Rich Oliver. And I ended up, I did 10 laps with him getting up to speed, right? He had ridden there in December at the tire test, but then here he shows, he shows up, I'm kind of up to speed. And in the first 10 laps, he drug me faster than I had gone. And I learned an incredible amount in 10 laps. And I came in and Barry McMahon, my crew chief, was there. And I rolled in and my eyes were this big. I'd just done 10 laps toe-to-toe with Miguel de Hama. I had already won as far as the weekend was concerned to me, right? And I looked at Barry and I go, if they don't go too much faster, I can do this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like to my crew chief, like. I, 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 I think I could do this, you know? 
And I went back out and man, I don't know how every time I went out almost all weekend, I ended up with Miguel on track. And one of the, <laughs> I, I, Al Luddington, we, we used to ride for two days. We had a day off for Supercross and then we rode again on Saturday or something. And on the off day, I was wandering around the pits and, and Al Luddington saw me in my crew shirt. And he goes, hey, hey, man, hey, Josh, hey, come here. And I'm like, I didn't think the guy knew my name. He was on like MMI commercials all over every time Brayson was on TV. And he goes, hey, man, uh, the old man says like you ride really good in control. He really likes riding with you. And, and I'm just like, what? <laughs> you know? And so then we get to qualifying and like, I'm going to roll out with my, my, you know, my friend, Jason Pridmore, who's helping Richie Alexander. And we're all on Suzuki's and we go rolling out there. Now I'm the only guy on Michelin's. Everyone else is on Dunlop's. The whole damn grid's on Dunlop's except for me. And I remember Jason was like, cool with me rolling out and us rolling out together. So we go out, we do our first fast lap. And I kind of draft by the guys and I go into turn one or something to start our lap. And I panicked because here I am. I screwed up. I got in front of the guy I was looking forward to pulling me around the racetrack. And so I just, I just went crazy. I went for everything I had and I was terrified that I was holding it up and I'm going around the West banking and I couldn't believe that they hadn't drafted me yet. So I go through the chicane like crazy. I'm not even trying. I'm not even thinking about where I end up on the board. I'm worried about holding these guys up because I know they're going to be up on the board. Now, do, so you hear, just, do you hear them I behind you? With them, do you hear them behind you? No, no, but you can't hear anything on the banking. I'm just tucked in as tight as I can going, damn it. I bet they hate my guts because this is going to be the <laughs> shittiest lap in the history of Daytona, right? I've screwed everything up. And when I, when I crossed the line and they hadn't passed me, I'm like, what is going on? So I go into the infield fast again and I look over my shoulder and I've dropped them. I was by myself. And at that point, I had out-qualified. I was on pole. I had out-qualified Steve Crevier with the number one plate. Matt Maladden rode a 600 for like three races that year. Like I was in front of Mickey. I was in front of Curtis Roberts. Jamie Hacking, Tommy Haight, like you name it. The list was deep. And then at the last like 30 seconds, Miguel and, and uh, Rich Oliver together ended up getting first and second. So I ended up third on the grid. And it was just like, it was such an insane, you know, jump into it. And I was so new, you know, I've been riding a motorcycle for five years. Now, what was different about me was it wasn't like everybody was road racing from when they were young, but everybody was a, pro motocrosser or road dirt track or you know most of them had a lot of riding and racing experience and my racing and riding experience like when i was 11 i got a metal tank ds80 that i rode in a field next to an airport by myself because no other kids in the neighborhood had motorcycles so as big a berm as i could push up and my dad liked motorcycles but you know he rode a little bit and yeah. do, you, do you come back to the garage and you go like, now they're talking about Josh Hayes. <laughs> you know, but it was like, I went from that and, and, you know, to one day I was a pro racer and that, that was success enough. So to have all the other things have happened that happened was just icing on the cake. Man. Like, 
What, none what of a, that had to, none of that had to happen for me to live an amazing life. You what, know. What about that MotoGP ride? Seven. Uh, you know, man. like. I mean, I mean, who MotoGP who does ride, who does top ten in their first time out on a MotoGP? It's, Nobody. It's funny because I I was thinking a lot about this today. I don't. I, I'm out pedaling my bicycle training and. I got to thinking about GP and I don't even know why I was, but I was thinking about that particular race and like, man, like it was such a, a, a ray of light and such a dark time because I only got that opportunity because like when Marco Simoncelli got killed and Colin got hurt in that incident, I was going, I, I, it's a long story, but how I ended up there, but I was supposed to test on the Tuesday after with the journalist and the motorcycle and the, or the GP guys or something, they were going to allow me to test the GP bike because I'd done a good job for Yamaha and they wanted to do something nice for me. And then this thing happened and I got the call like two weeks before and said, Hey, you're going to race. And I was like, what? You know? So then I showed up and I only rode a GP bike on slicks and with carbon brakes in qualifying and in the race, everything else was soaking wet. But I mean, the, I had some amazing things happen. Again, I was surrounded by great people. Hervé Pontrol and that team, Tech Three, were so good to me and so comforting. And Cal Crutchlow, as my teammate, was much different than I feel like the Cal Crutchlow that we see on TV. He was awesome. He was helpful, and he wanted me to do well. You know. And I had so many things to bring back from that weekend. The, the sessions were an hour long. It was, and I'm, when I say it was downpouring, I mean, it was downpouring. I was one of the first bikes on track and I rode, I, re, I remember thinking, shit, I should probably come in now. And when I looked at the time on the clock, there was like seven minutes left. And I was like, well, no point in that. So I finished the session to the checkered flag and I rolled in and Hervé and the team were cracking up and Hervé's like, in all my years of GP, and I've been here forever, I've never seen anything like it. I, he goes, you never came in? I go, what was I going to change? I was just trying to figure shit out, you know, like, and he's like, no, I love it. I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen anybody do it, you know, and then in qualifying, I was doing okay, but I was, I, I mean, I was riding a GP bike on on tires, the Bridgestones at that time were the 800s with the Bridgestones were like the combination of everybody I talked to was like terrified because those are the things that just bit you quick when you weren't looking. They were always talking about, oh, you have to go fast to put heat in the tire the right way, but it might kill you for doing it. You know, it was like, so they all scared the shit out of me for the most part. And it was nowhere near as bad as they made it out to be. But I, I got humbled very quickly in a few aspects too i remember casey stoner passing me in the spot of the track where you shouldn't be able to pass somebody and being like well that was embarrassing you know but i i did manage to do some things okay and i was actually in front of nakasuga and he used me as a toe to beat me and put me last on the grid which again ended up being like the luckiest thing in the world because i'm last on the grid open pipes we go to start the race i can't hear my motorcycle i can't hear a damn thing because i've got 18 pipes pointed at me you know and so i got a terrible launch which helped me avoid you know not knowing if i would have carbon brakes in turn one and i think bautista took out nikki and rossi so that cleared out half the grid right there and then it started raining and 
I was kind of in a battle with Nakasuga. And then when the rain came, he actually started to ride away from me. Now, Nakasuga had more laps than anybody. He was the official test rider for Yamaha. So he just kind of had a, had a better know of what was going on. And I was just trying to kind of figure it out. But then I started seeing, I mean, quite a few people fell down. But then like Caparossi, Tony Elias, a lot of guys came back to me and I actually passed them and rode off in front of them. So to end up seventh was pretty incredible. But I, I think maybe the highlight of it was uh, the morning warm up. It was pouring rain, but it had stopped raining. And we were all out. It was a 20 or 25 minute session. We're all out on rain tires. And there got to be a dry line that couldn't have been more than 10 inches wide, but around 95% of the racetrack. And everybody was kind of finishing up. And I came in with a few minutes to go. And I looked at the guys and I go, I know this sounds crazy, but do you think I could go out on the slick tire bike? And they looked at me like, what? And I go, hey, listen, we have no idea what the weather is going to be like this afternoon. I feel like I should get experience in every opportunity, in, in, in every bit of thing that I can. And they're like, all right, you really want to. And then I went out there and I got, you know, two laps in the books and ended up leading a session in MotoGP. Like I, I led the morning warm up. Oh, wow. But I have a sheet with me on the top of the list <laughs> for one session of MotoGP. And I don't think there's a lot, like there's so many people that can't say they have that. And I have that, you well, know, so. On the, that, on the first weekend and, and, out. Like Cal and the guys were cracking up when I came back in the box and Cal ran over and got on his knees and was like bowing and being funny. And like, it was just such a great atmosphere and we had so much fun. Did you come back with offers from other teams? <laughs> I, I was 34 years old and I, I looked at Hervé and I go, Hervé, what do I have to do? Like, cause I, we stuck around cause on Tuesday, Melissa got to ride the GP bike and test it with the, with the journalists. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, I was like, Herbie, like, what do I have to do? And he said, Josh, you know what? He goes, I'm so sorry. You are the right rider at the wrong time. You know, you that just, was it. you just that cross, was it. you just cross garages. <laughs> and you, there was, there was nothing, you know, like that. Was, you're, that was you're, you're very loyal, but you know, if, if you want to play the game, you gotta, you gotta go where the opportunity is or make yeah, the opportunity. Nobody would take you seriously. They really wouldn't. But, you know, like Davi was coming into the team. So he came in and started working with my crew chief. So I got to kind of sit there and see him move from the Honda to the, to the Yamaha. And he actually kept both of my bikes intact. Cal, Cal's two bikes, one stayed in 800, which is what Melissa rode. And one became the 1000 because they were moving to the 1000s and the CRT bikes for 2014 or 20, 2012, excuse me. So Cal just went right to his 1,000 first thing in the test on Tuesday. Davi wanted to compare the 800 against the 800 Honda. He just finished on the Repsol Honda. He wanted to compare those first and then go to the 1,000. So he had one of each, and I kind of got to sit and listen and walk you know, through all that, which was pretty cool. So I, uh, I was lucky to get to witness and, and see all that, you know, like some amazing stuff. You know, all like aside, you, you put in the work and it's an unbelievable result. Just unbelievable I, result. You know, and, and, I, and luck has not, has nothing to do with it. All right. It's, uh, it's just, it's all, it's all, it's all you. It's all you. I, cre I created a ton of good habits, you know, like I, I learned from a lot of incredible riders and I, you know, when, 
when people ask me about who I looked up to in racing, I got to be honest, I didn't watch much racing. Like when I was in high school and I got my street bike, I started watching GP a little bit because it was on American sports cavalcade on TNN or whatever it was. And all I really showed was GP and a little bit of world Superbike about the time Anthony Gobert started riding on the Kawasaki. But you know, it was Kevin, uh, right towards the end of Wayne's career, Kevin, uh, and Dewan and those guys. And so, you know, that stuff was so far out there. I, the first couple AMA races I ever saw, I think were 750 Supersport at Loudon. And I remember Jason and Aaron Yates, I think Aaron crashed three times and still almost got on the podium, uh, you know, and, and I, then, I, I, always, I always like to see him, Ryan. He's, he's, he always looks like he's about to crash. It, but then I got, when in such a short time, I ended up on track with these guys and they were doing these incredible things. And I can't tell you how many times I was humbled by something they did. And I was just like, well, if that's what you got to do, I guess my career is over, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I don't know how to do that. And then you go just try to figure it out. But my, my career, my racing, my race craft, my this and that is, is just all it is, is a copy of all of my favorite things that I saw other racers do. I saw them do something incredible. I said, I want that in my bag of tricks. I saw how they handled something with attitude or no attitude. And I said, man, I liked how he managed that. And that's what I want to do. So it's a mix of anytime I was in a difficult situation, I would say it was a combination of two things. I'd seen somebody else manage it somehow before, or how can I get through this in a way that my dad will be proud of me? And if I did those, you know, if I do that, I can't get it wrong, you know, in my mind. So when it was adversity, it was kind of, how can I do this in a way my dad would be proud of how I handled it. And then otherwise it was like all the things and that I tried to groove in and make, make the, the habits that made me, me were all just copies of things like getting up to speed quickly on track. Matt Maladden broke my heart one time and I remembered how bad it hurt. And, and I said, you know what? I got to make sure I've got that because that's as demoralizing as something. He, he pulled out of the track one time or pulled out onto the track and I was three laps in and up to speed and on his outlap, he rode away from me. And I was just like, and this was at a time when those tires were so shiny when they came off the warmers and rolled down the track. And I was just like, with a sticker, oh. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it hurts so bad. So how, how do you do that? How do you calibrate your brain to go as fast as you can from lap one? Because me as a track day rider and an ex-amateur WSMC rider and then Nabil as a track day rider, I mean, it, the first session, we're just, we're just trying to figure out how not to have the front end wash away, right? And, it, and you're just trying to build confidence. How do you do it from lap one? repetition and practice we ride a lot we're professionals one thing we have is an amazing crew around us so i know i know i, I knew for years every time i rolled out on track i had a i had the right tire at the right pressure it was hot and all things being equal i know what to expect from it and so especially 
after I've rolled out for the first time of the day and I come into the pits, I know what to expect when I roll back onto the racetrack. So just get to the business. Tires are hot off the warmer. There's no sense in taking time bringing them in because all you do is cool them down and try to bring them up again. Just go, you know, and I just practiced it. Two, the, the, the 200 mile races will teach you to do that too, you know, any of those pit stop races. So there was a lot of things like that, that just over time, I, I just, people kind of do it. I took each individual piece seriously and so tried to make sure that I made it mine. You're a student of the sport and you're also a teacher of the sport. Well, I, I tried to be a decent student and like I said, sometimes I had to figure it out the hard way and sometimes I had, I could do it with less than that, you know? So sometimes like, I could learn from other people's mistakes. <laughs> you speak very humbly about your career, all, all to your credit. Uh, but to me, that's the epitome of, of athletes in this sport, particularly where, I mean, I think the bigger achievers they are, the more humble they are about what they've done. But so what... What drives you? I mean, we think about this in, in business and other aspects of life, right? It's it's very hard to stick with something that's that's that hard. That's one of the most difficult career choices I can think of. Uh, and and here you are out of high school, and you could have chosen to be, you know, take the safe route, be an accountant, or or get a job somewhere, and 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 start your life that way. One, you decide to go racing, which you weren't racing before. You not you didn't come from a racing family to say, you know, it's right. been bestowed upon you. And then a long and successful career that probably had a lot of ups and downs. How, how do you keep going and what drives you? It's a good question. Like I, I, I definitely had a strong love for it. Not just for the like, not just for the sport. I had a love for the competition. I had a love for, you know, the racetrack to me is a family. It really is. We're a traveling circus and we need all the monkeys that are there. I don't have to like all of my family, <laughs> you know, some of them are, some of them right. you love. Then there's that dirty uncle that you avoid, you know, at the time. <laughs> but it is still a family, you know, and, and I, I felt like I fit in there. And, um, but I wanted to, to, you know, I think that being an athlete is playing whatever mind game you have to, to get to the, I, I don't care how you get there. It's just that you get there. Right. So, I had a million different, different things. The, the, the record I played wasn't the same record every day. Mm. Sometimes there are definitely days where being a motorcycle racer was not the most fun thing I could think of. And when you're beat up, hurt, um, when you, there, there were times when I felt like you talk about work ethic and things like that, that life ain't fair. I did, I did a good job and I didn't get what I was looking for out of it. And I watched someone who I thought did less get accolades and move on, you know, like your body of work isn't appreciated sometimes or whatever it is. But I had a million different things. Like I said, how can I manage this in a way my father would be proud of me? I, I believed in my crew. I knew they believed in me. I did not want to disappoint them. The team aspect was very, very important to me to uphold my end of the bargain. There were, when I got to Yamaha, there were like seven people. At one time I was the only rider on the team and there were seven crew members or more, if you include management, whose full-time job it was to build, perfect, and develop a super bike 
two of them for me, for me. So I better be upholding my end of the deal when, the, when I have that much resource behind me. It's difficult when every lap you do is scrutinized, when they want answers to everything. And sometimes you have to tell them, I don't know the answer. It didn't feel any different, but I can still go fast with this or that and let the, let something else tell the story, the lap time or the data or whatever it is, you know, um, I worked really, really hard at home because I wanted to uphold my end of the bargain. I wanted to do a good job. I wanted, you know, I, I've pictured, let's say why Yamaha paid me to ride a motorcycle. What They weren't paying me for the, the 30 days a year that we were racing, three-day weekends, 10 weekends a year, right? To me, I had said long before I ever got a factory ride, why are they paying that guy that much money? I'd do that shit for free. So I, it would be hypocritical to say, oh, they pay me for 30 days a year and I get paid good. I figured the reason they paid me was so that I didn't have to go get a job, so that I could spend every waking minute of my life perfecting my craft and trying to be a better motorcycle racer for them. So I think perspective has a lot to do on where motivation comes from, and I could find a lot of different things. Sometimes I didn't want to lose. Sometimes I wanted to win. Sometimes I wanted to make somebody proud of me, uh, you know, whether it was my wife, my crew chief, my parents, the fans, like whatever it takes. In a downtime, I tried to pick the thing that would pick me up where I, I think a lot of us naturally as athletes are somewhat insecure. And a lot of times we'll look the other way. And, you know, I tried not to, when I was sad, listen to country music. <laughs> sad music you know <laughs> like so I, I try never to listen to music. Yeah, i don't listen to country music but, you know you know what you get when you play country music backwards right but you get your truck back you get your boat back your wife comes home <laughs> your dog your dog reborn <laughs> wait i got a soundtrack for that <laughs> Uh, you know, so I, I don't know if that answered your question, Viola, but uh, like motivation, you know, I, I pulled it from so many places and, and motivation for me was, it's funny because Sean Bice was like the encyclopedia for me when I was winning a lot of stuff. And every weekend I would, I would be in the, in the press room and like, you've got Paul Carruthers who was with cycle news at the time. And then Sean, who was the press officer for the team. And, and Dave Swartz. And for a little while there, I was winning a lot of races in a short amount of time. And, and I was racking these things up quickly. And they're like, oh, you're tied for so-and-so with so-and-so for like most superbike wins or da 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 And, and I was just like, oh, that's great. And they'd be like, you didn't know? And I'm like, no, but thanks for telling me. I think that's awesome. And they're like, aren't you excited? I'm like, yeah, I'm more excited that I won today. You know, like I, I didn't think about the record books. That stuff takes care of itself if you do your job. I didn't even think, I, I gotta be careful how I say this, but I, I wasn't thinking championship all day, every day. I wanted to win every day. Every race we went out into, my job is to win this today. And when I did that well, and you would get a big points gap, that freed me up. I didn't, 
I didn't ride in a manner of I have something to protect. It made me free because I can, I got a, I'm now got a gimme. I got a screw up that I can do and still be in it. And I still believe I can win it. So the more success I had, it fed me to just keep digging deeper and risking more and, and going for it, you know? And I think that, well, again, I was willing to risk a lot to succeed because I just loved it. I loved the competition and I wanted it. And I wanted, I, I you know, I wasn't real cool in high school and, and I've never been one of the cool guys. And so I, I very often in my life felt underrated. And, and so it was my own personal little battle that I've, I tried to raise my rating, you know, do it with my work. Nothing like a little thing yeah. on your just shoulder. Being, that... being cool is subjective, right? Uh -huh. Winning everything. That just, yeah, you can't I, say anything I, about that. I, I just, I remember hearing from, uh, from denouncers, I think it was pretty more, and, and, and they were just saying, you know, the reason why Josh leads almost every lap is because he just can't stand not leading. And even, <laughs> even if you burn your tire and you know you're never going to finish the race, you're still going to lead every lap you can. Because you just did, you don't want to be second. I you know, I was uncomfortable in second. I was more comfortable leading, even with a plus zero gap. I felt like I could manage it better that way. It showed. And I, uh, I, I, man, to me, the greatest champions I saw before me, they were relentless, and it's a word that I like to use a lot. And actually, I I talked to Sean Dillon Kelly a lot in 2021, and we used that word a lot be relentless and i wanted to wear people down if i could do it from the front that was fine if they gave me an opportunity to pass i was going to do it relentlessly until i wore them down and they didn't want to fight anymore i loved what i did in every way and i enjoyed leading um it it, it won me a championship in in 2011 um Blake Young won more races than me, but we got lucky and we got extra points for pole and laps led. So I was fighting to lead laps and I got a full 25 extra points between those two things over the course of the season, which made the difference in my championship. So like in doing that, I became very comfortable with leading races. And I wasn't always confident that if I was in second riding behind somebody, that I could make the move happen under pressure. And, you know, I, I don't like a lot of what I see in like Supercross right now. Um, I, I believe there's a certain amount of class that's kind of getting pushed out of racing. If you have to ruin somebody else's race to make a pass, then it's probably not the right move. I want to see good racing with a pass and repass. And like, I, I want to see good, classy racing and some people really enjoy the banging bars part of it and i don't like seeing people's races get ruined and or people getting hurt so like i said this is a, a really not a very big circus and we need every monkey that we have to show up every week you know so yeah i remember what was it doing versus caribbean last yeah. lap where they yeah and that was one one hell of a battle there I remember Bayless and 
and uh, Colin. Yeah, that was that too. That was a good. One. But no, I mean, I I just you know I I was comfortable there. Uh, you know, quite a few people, even Jason, had beat me up a little bit when Blake was was winning all his races. Was like, why don't you sit behind him for a race? Well, and I'm like, the problem is. His pace was a little bit slower than mine, but he can manage to hang on to me when I was on my pace. He also had a good and, teacher, right? He was Kevin was yeah, in his corner. Yeah, but he could hang on. But at that pace, more people could get in the race. And now my odds are going down. Where if I could drag him out away from everybody and it's just the two of us, my odds are still pretty good. But what happened to him? I mean, you, you broke him down, right? I mean... I don't know. I don't think I had so much to do with that. I mean, losing doesn't, doesn't do anything good for anybody. Right. Like I know he got beat quite a bit. He, he was almost unfair because when he had that championship almost in his hands, he had not even been in the running for any championship before that I know of that I can remember. I could be wrong about that, but I don't remember him being in the running for it. And here he is. It's his first AMA Superbike championship. I've already got a championship in the books and I've got three other championships before that in pro racing. And, and I rolled into the last race going, you know what, if he wins it, I'm still an AMA Superbike champ. You can never take it back from me. Right. Yeah. I, I did it and I'm yeah. going to get another shot at it next year. So it's going to be okay. And I could race free and I rode some of my best and Blake it ate him alive and he rode tight and he let it get away from him and took it out of his own control and handed me control of it. And that was just an unfortunate thing, but it was more how I think he reacted to the team and the people around him um, that kind of pushed him away and people didn't want to work with him. And it was unfortunate because he was such a great talent and, and our sport needed him. So, he and I had a difficult relationship. He was pretty bitter about a lot of things, you know, and he was he was in encouraged by the people around him that our sport needed this great rivalry, which meant he had to pick a fight with me. And, and, I, and I didn't I, I wasn't of that. You know, I think there's two different kinds of attitudes in racing, and that's either you hate everybody that you race against because you you, you know, whatever it is you need to motivate yourself to beat people. Me, I'd race you just as hard for a Coca-Cola in my backyard as I would for a Superbike championship. I don't care. I don't like to lose. And I can love you and still race with you that way. And so... Um, it's not, he, pro, it's not was, pro wrestling. He was being taught the other way yeah. and you know, it, by the people around him. Yeah. And it, it also leaks to MMA. I mean, if you look now, MMA versus MMA what it used to be, I mean, people people make a shot of it now and, and make a personal rivalry or no, it's just a contest of skill. Yeah. So, so Josh, I, I do want to say, I probably heard the best answer to the question I asked you from any business person I've spoken to and I listen to a lot of these things because... Wait, wait, wait hold, hold on. Like didn't, didn't, we, didn't, we talk, didn't we talk business just before this podcast? So are you saying he's, you know, <laughs> he gave you a better answer yeah, than not, me? Especially Gal, by the way. He, <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 doesn't, he doesn't like my psychic website. Uh. No, but like, you know, most people will go, uh, I had a chip on my shoulder, I grew up poor, or I just loved it. And they'll give you a one-dimensional answer. And, and your answer was multidimensional on... 
look, one day I had a bag of tricks and one day I wanted to make my dad proud. The other day I wanted to be accountable to my team. I was thankful for Yamaha. I was, yeah. I wanted to win. I didn't want to lose. And, and that's a powerful psychological bag of tricks to be able to use these different tools at the right time and actually also not be very unidimensional because I, I don't think these people think deeply enough how you have about how they were driven and how they kept going. So thank you for that. That was a, a profound and, and interesting answer. But well, uh, I think it gives me longevity because it's not, it doesn't get stale. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And so. that may be a big explanation on why some people's career are short, shorter lived. If you reach a goal and you can't find a new one, <laughs> you know, like I, I can tell you, it, it, you know, when I knew what there, there was, there was a point when you were asking about the MotoGP thing where there was no next level for me at some point I got pretty old, but I was still competitive and I had beat everybody in our paddock. What, you know, I look at like a Mark Marquez and I go, what keeps that guy going when you have beat everybody in the world at the very top level, Lewis Hamilton, you've smashed them all for year upon year upon year. You've won five in a row. What is the motivation to go reinvent yourself, to bust your ass, to come back and beat the same people again, right? There's no next level. That is hard. Love it. You know? That's right. I, and I still don't know that I know the answer of quite how to do that other than to be more short-sighted in that point, in that bit of it and go, okay, I want to I do it for the, the team around me or my family or whatever it is, you got to change your vision and your sight path probably a little bit, you know, because everything I'd worked for for that point was to get to the next level. All I wanted to do was race the fastest guys in the world, whoever, whatever level that was, wherever that was. And I still believe that that top level racers are top level racers. Our national championship has racers that are at Grand Prix level. It's about opportunity. I mean, and how many more racers are there out there? that don't get the opportunities I had that could make my records look puny. It, you know, there's, you know, there's a million of them out there that never get the opportunity to ride a motorcycle or show what they can do on a motorcycle. So. Yeah. Like gal. Like gal. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. So you mentioned earlier SDK working with him and talking to him. Uh, we, we should probably, before we conclude, t touch upon this year's racing. What do you think are American racing team chances, and and in particular the you know Cam and and uh, Sean? Well, you know I'm a little disconnected from the inner workings of how everything works, right? I was um, sorry. I want to be careful. <laughs> I try to. I try to speak. Um, we can always edit. No, hey. no, no! It's not. It's not I'm not. Good. I'm not editing. This is this is gold here. He's he's confident enough to chew. What what are you chewing right now? <laughs> Tostitos. <laughs> confident <laughs> enough to eat Tostitos on a podcast. The, there, there's uh, no way I'm editing this out. <laughs> I I think that um, if you looked at it, I, I think Cameron would say the same thing. I'm a little disappointed with the with the results of what happen with Cameron this year because I know what he's capable of. I'm a big believer in Cameron Bovier. And I, I heard a little bit of the struggles of how it went for the year, but I don't, I'm not 
in it enough to know the real everything about it, right? And so I haven't seen the team put out the, the stream of success that I would like to see from them. And Cameron wasn't quite able to do it. And, but Cameron hasn't had too many times in his career where he's been knocked back and had to build himself back up. No, it, it's not like he's never had any, you know, strife or had to come back from shit. He has, but the level over there, the, how close the lap times are, there's a lot of things in the details that are probably really easy to get knocked back a little bit and it hurt really, really badly. So I'm really hoping that Cameron can steady the ship and bounce back a little bit with the help of the team this year. Um, Amen. SDK, I think, had a very strong start at his test in Jerez. And I think, you know, I, when I say I worked with him, I, I just, I spent quite a bit of time talking to him because I think he's, he's, articulate talented i'm a big fan of him of both him and richie escalante and i felt like sean soaked in the information and and picked and choose what he needed which was fine like i said i don't care how you get there i'm just curious you get there but a lot of the things we talked about i would watch him put into practice and so it was kind of fun for me to watch that so we, i continued to have a dialogue with him and I think that where, where SDK is starting from in his career versus where Cameron is in his career, it's going to be an interesting dynamic with the two of them. And I think that they both have a lot of opportunity for success for two different purposes and reasons. Sean's youth and enthusiasm is, his enthusiasm, I think, is far above Cameron's, where Cameron's is more of he's been through it before and he knows how to work through the process and he is fast enough to do it and now he's got to go put all the pieces together does that does that make sense like yeah you know, like yeah. of how to see it so i i would like to see both of them do good i i you know that last test at Hress, cameron had a tough one sdk had a good one and they'll talk about well sdk got good tires and Cameron rode around on some old stuff. And it was like, I don't know why his crew chief would do that to him. You know, like you finished a tough season. It doesn't matter why SDK is in front of him. The fact is SDK was in the top 10. So he's going to have an entire off season, happy, motivated to show what he can do when he comes back. And Cameron's like, Oh, I crashed twice at the last test. My teammate was eight positions in front of me let's start to look forward to, <laughs> you know, like, so I kind of hope that some of those things can be sorted and solved and, and go in a better direction going forward. It, it's on so, your head, right? It's on your head. That's and, a bit and... of a dreary, uh, uh, you know, take on it, but this is, this is one of my, my flaws is you ask a question, I give an honest answer. <laughs> but if, if anybody can get him out of that mindset, <laughs> If anybody can get him out of that mindset and put him in a, in a winning mindset, I mean, it, it's all in your head. At the end of the day, we all have two legs, two arms, and, and we can all do the same thing on a motorcycle if, if our brain is just wired at the same, at the same level. His, and, his level is world class. His opportunity, the people around him, the direction, 
that they help him go to develop and become one with and that, that motorcycle be his so that he can showcase it. He's already raced most of those guys in his career. He did the very first Red Bull Rookies Cup and he did a year of 125 Grand Prix where he was, you know, I saw the sheet at Donington. He was, you know, in front of Zarco and all these guys. Quartararo was still an embryo probably at the time, but <laughs> what is, you know, what like, is dad? Yeah. He's, he's been there. He was Mark Marquez's teammate on a 125. you know, like his talent isn't, isn't in question here. And I don't think it can be, if anybody's doing that, then they, they're just not seeing deep enough into what's going on. I don't think. Cool. Yeah. What do you think about Joe Roberts chances this year? I have a lot of high hopes for Joe. I mean, Joe's had had flashes of brilliance, right? Like he's done some incredible things. I spent a couple, I spent a, Joe has been here at the house with us training a little bit here in the last two weeks and actually spent a day at the track with him working on some stuff. But um, Joe rides a lot on how he feels. And I think that if he can steady that out and go through uh, routine and practice, that we can see a more steady Joe. But I know that he started super strong and then he had something that kind of, he went through a run of where he crashed a bunch of motorcycles. And then some other things happened outside of what we know that contributed to him getting into a rut. And I think what the first thing that happens when you do that is you revert back to some old, some old habits that, that got you there, things that you feel like you can trust. But the technique of riding a Moto2 bike versus all the things beforehand is quite a bit different. And so I think he actually kind of got into a rut or a hole and had a very difficult time coming back out of it. And whenever that's happening and you've got, you know, part-time teammates that are coming in and performing well or just a million different things, you're not where you feel like you belong. One other thing is he's, he's riding for an Italian team and, and he, he didn't feel like he was really one or very close with the team. And I go, I go, Hey man, like, have you like tried to learn any Italian? And he's like, well, no. And I go, well, think about this. If some kid came from, you know, Brazil and wanted to ride for my team here in America and he wouldn't even attempt to learn English, how much am I going to want to fight for that guy for real? You know? And so I think, I think he kind of, we just, thought about things in a little bit different light and can hopefully point him in a better place. And I think one thing he did was he rode at the end of the year there, you know, he broke his collarbone and then he showed up at Portimao and he heard it on Friday, but he rode through it anyway. He felt it something bad and he, he qualified pretty, not too bad. And then he went to park for May and found out that the collarbone had pulled apart. Like the, the screws had pulled out of the collarbone and his team saw that and they were like, Oh, okay. We feel like we got a racer, you know? So there was a few, it's a, a blessing in disguise or something, but everybody kind of is going to go back, I think, and start from a little bit better place. And hopefully they can figure out how to manage and keep that. And like, it's not always about the riding on the motorcycle. There's so much of it is managing your life and your team and your attitude. And, and you know, I, I talk so much about like, having leadership qualities that you have to have because your crew is your crew. So you have to figure out how to work with them and you want them to, to 
I, I don't know about love. You want them to love you, believe in you, and want to help you. If you motivate them to want to help you, and, and it all starts with what they see from you, what, what you do every day to show them how bad you want it and how hard you're willing to work for it, whether they work or not. You're not there because they're working hard. You're there because you want to win. And if you go through that process and, and you know, leadership isn't knowing answers. It's knowing when to ask questions or just having a, the, the singular focus of, I, I don't care how we get there. I want your help. I want your help. You guys all help me. We want to get here, right? This is the goal for all of us. If I succeed, you succeed with me. Then people were willing to fight for you. They're willing to go to the depths for you. And you got a, a lot of these young guys, I'm going to say, or this generation you, you talked about, now they're all racing at three years old. The problem is they're superstars by the time they're 10. And so there's a lot of social dynamics because they don't go to regular public school and get bullied or much of anything else. There's a lot of social dynamics that are missing. And so I think a lot of them are missing out on how to build these teams around them of the people that they're handed. And it gets to be a lot more of the luck of the draw rather than building something around yourself. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So you mentioned briefly your uh, training at your house. I know you're doing this J-Force program with Fast Track. <laughs> Tell us a little more about it and how does that help road racing? <laughs> you, you, you notice you notice I slipped in fast track riders because yeah. his his best friend owns it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. The the truth is, Ahmad is relentless. <laughs> that's the truth of it. I heard that's the quality. <laughs> he, he had his uh, he had his program with Eric, and then Eric moved away. Eric Bostrom, where they had a little dirt track yeah. program. And uh, Imad had just, I had invited him. He came over and rode at our house one day when a bunch of buddies were riding in the backyard. And he had been working me really hard that he'd like to keep his dirt track program going. And I kept going, man, you know, like, sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm not that interested. And, and you just, he just, he, he kept on me and kept on me. And he goes, man, I'll do whatever it takes to make it easy for you. And so finally, we just kind of got to a point and I said, you know what? Okay, we'll give it a shot. And um, I think that I have a little bit of a different, um, just, just from talking to Ahmad, you know, I have a little different idea about how I go about things. And uh, I'm a big proponent of American Super Camp. I'm a big believer in American Super Camp. And what I don't want this to be is our little J-Force thing is not Super Camp. We don't do drills. We don't, we don't go through it the way that they do. But I think that, Super camp is, is probably the number one prerequisite that I would recommend before coming and doing what we do. You can come do it without it, but if you do super camp, you're going to have a much more enjoyable time with us. I think that mine is more geared around racers um, because it's what I know and what I'm comfortable with. And we talk a little bit about riding technique and we'll grab you if we think you're doing something that's, that needs to be worked on. And we'll say, Hey, listen, if you keep doing this, you're going to hurt yourself. I'd like you to work on this. But the big thing that I used the, the TTRs and the dirt tracking for was like situational awareness, race craft positioning, you know, a lot of different things like that. And so that's kind of what I enjoy working on here and what J-Force was kind of about more than it was about technique uh, on the motorcycle. But I think that 
just in riding it, it's, it's like anything else. It's, it's cross training. There's no one thing about it that I think directly relates to road racing a motorcycle other than you are working the controls, but in a different environment than what you do on a road race bike, which will only sharpen your uh, second nature to, to how to manage a situation with the controls and motorcycle, make it more second nature um, and learning to find balance and maybe open your eyes to fresh ideas of how to go fast whenever you go to the racetrack and do track days or a race or whatever it might be. So um, I think it's more of just an expansion of the adding, adding tools to your toolbox than it is any one thing that will say this will make you this better at this on a, on a street bike or a road race bike. Do you, do you ride GP or regular shifting? You mentioned control. GP on a, on a road race bike. Of any, if I'm on a racetrack, I got to ride GP shift. Uh, I struggle with street shift. Okay. As soon as my head gets into like head ducks down and I go fast, I'll, I'll shift it the wrong way. Um, but you know, my motocross bikes are all standard shift street bike i'm fine no problems you know um just depends on what mode i'm in and what i'm doing you know yeah it's kind of funny there's a lot of motorcycles i can't buy because you can't reverse the shifting on them and i don't want one bike with regular shifting one bike with gp shifting so moto guzzi i really wanted them the, the new moto guzzi but you know there's no way to reverse the shifting so i can't buy it no ah sure there is i, I looked at it didn't, didn't look the, like the things that have made it more difficult are like the the uh quick shifters because you can't just flip the knuckle at the top anymore because the shifter has to be pull rather than push so you have to have yeah. a shifter that it's both sides on the shifter part of it like the r1 is you know so yeah there are things that are getting a little more difficult with technology sometimes but yeah i i first tried a um quick shifter on my k6 jixer and it either worked second to sixth or it worked first to fourth <laughs> for some reason that i don't know the calibration did, didn't work out so that doesn't make any I sense know, I know, those right? things have become pretty damn simple these days they work on everything well the stock that ones are so good it wasn't stock so it was it was yeah. it, the k6 they didn't they didn't come with it uh i forgot i think it was a dino jet uh, yeah 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 which are great <laughs> ones i mean i used yeah. those for years yeah well I don't remember what, what carry did, but that's that's how it worked. And then then I started riding with uh, I started riding on an RSV4, and that that one had a really good yeah. quick shifter. You so may I, need some shifting uh, coaching. Could, it could be. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> uh, I need a lot of coaching for a lot of things, not necessarily motorcycle related, but. <laughs> you and me both. I need it for, <laughs> for dad. <laughs> There's no, there's, there's no coaching for that. No. <laughs> need a manual. <laughs> I, did Did you see that picture of uh, you know that, that giant book where it says like manual for women and it's like ten thousand pages? Oh, see that? It's probably written by a man. <laughs> 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 a woman came over. Uh, you know, Melissa, we're, we've been kind of cleaning out because we have a new girl coming. We're cleaning out around the house and we're getting rid of some old baby stuff or something. And Melissa puts up out a bunch of stuff on the porch for this buy nothing group, right? They just pass things around rather than selling anything. If you ever need something, you look on there and see what they got going. So this woman shows up today to get these old car seats that we had or something like that. And 
we got to chat and, and she goes, da, 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 yeah, I got seven kids. And I looked at her, I was like, with this look of disgust on my face, like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, how are you alive? Like two are about to kill me. I don't know how you survive. You know? Also think about your carbon footprint. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a really bad joke in my head right now, but I'm going to probably leave that one out. All right, we got a bunch of we get we got a bunch of stupid questions because we made a whole bunch of questions. Uh, pineapple on pizza, yeah, nay. Melissa does. I don't. No. Okay. What else we got here? The Hawaiian uh, pizza. Why are you so nice? <laughs> My daddy made me. <laughs> he knocked me out if I did. Uh, let's see what else. Um... How's being married to a racer when you're a racer yourself? Did you make that question, Nabil? It's terrible. It's terrible. It sounds really good until you're in it. Imagine every motorcycle that you love, you got to buy two of them. Oh. <laughs> like, shit's expensive. And, and one you got to paint pink? Is that, is that how? No, my, my wife doesn't care for paint. That's no, for you. But, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, makes me it make me stand out. I guess. <laughs> no, it's it's hard. It's is is hard. there pressure to be faster than her? Otherwise, you know, it, marriage. I mean, I got I, she she did beat me one time on a supermoto. Well, let me say, she's she's convinced she beat me on a supermoto. And, <laughs> <laughs> and I still hear about it. it and it was wait, like wait, is she is she listening six. right now? Is she, is she there? She's around here somewhere. Oh, no, okay, she's, better she's, whisper. <laughs> it was like 2007. I still hear about it. <laughs> and you, you're wise enough to let her keep believing this. That's smart. But you would not believe the therapy that we get riding TTRs together. We've hurt each other pretty bad a couple <laughs> times. So, all right. What is your favorite track and why? I always liked Road America and Miller. I like flat, fast, fast racetracks. Road America just offered everything. Three top gear straightaways, 90 degree turns, which are good for like grinding lap times, a couple of long ones, a little bit of elevation. It just had everything in the world that I love, you know? And I felt a bit the same way about Miller. Miller doesn't quite have the elevation, but the way that, that the grip level was there and just the layout, it was such a fun racetrack. I, I really enjoyed those two racetracks in particular. Um, Jerez was fun. Portimao was fun. I mean, there's not too many I don't like, you know. But those are my favorites. Okay. Um, what else we got here? Where'd you put put Phillip Island in that ranking? I know you raced there. The yeah, Phillip Island is beautiful and it's pretty fun. But I don't think it's quite there on the fun factors like Road America to me. Just because of the things I like to do. But man, what a setting. Oh. Yeah. It's, it's very easy to crash because you, you crest that front straight and then you're looking at the view instead of at the turn. It might be a little too fast for me. <laughs> Just <laughs> That's So I got another question. I didn't write it down, but I just thought about it. How do you know Big Willow? How do you know when turn eight <laughs> ends and turn nine begins? I never know when to stop, start turning. 
there was a little straightaway. On. There was a little straightaway in there, right? Yeah. And so it became kind of a rhythm thing, and where I pointed my motorcycle, I kind of had a. It was a timing thing, right? If I could do the same lap on the same motorcycle ten times in a row, I could figure out the timing of it. So I, I could, I could find the point where you would start to where you could tell the track opened up a little bit, and that you could drive off of it towards the outside, and then I was able to point it back in just a little bit. And then I kind of double apexed nine, kind of the second part of it. You don't just overcharge it just a little bit, drift it wide, and then bring it back. So I could I could figure out and repeat the timing on it. When you start downshifting, uh, it was usually in nine. You know, I would do that big drive out. I think on the Cowie we only ran fifth gear. I don't think we ran sixth gear through there. So. I think I was fifth and I could spin the tire all the way out of there. And I, once I put down a couple of black lines, then I, they got really easy after that to repeat what you were doing, you know? Okay. Man, I went there on that classic bike. Was it last year or the year before? And I think I only did about 14 laps and did 25s on that thing. Jeez. Wow. That thing's a ripper, dude. It's so fast. Oh. It would wheelie fourth gear up the front straightaway at Button Willow. Oof. I, I want to see on one of Carrie's bikes. Remember when, yeah. when we did that, that podcast with Carrie and he had that beast, the Phillip Island beast, on the lift over there? Yeah, his bikes are pretty. Yeah. Pretty fast. Yeah, they're nice. Okay. Yeah, I think he prepped uh, Colin Edwards' bike, right? Yeah. For that. You, you yeah, know I think what? Colin I, wrote this. Yeah, I, I saw an interview with Colin where he said that, where he said the, the bike's not, you know, not that fast, and and Kara was like sitting in the audience going like, oh, okay, all right. Well, that guy just come up with GP <laughs> bike. Just. Hey, I tell you this, man. The guys over there at Phillip Island riding those classic bikes, those old '83 Katanas. Holy crap! Do they ride hard? But didn't you win over there on a... Yeah, I've won. I mean, in two years, I won three of the races. Yeah. I won the first year, two the next year. I had I had a third one in the bag and missed a backshift, got a false neutral, went off Oof. on the hairpin on the last lap. I had it won. So, so you see, that's that, Nabil, that's why he's a nice guy. He goes like, those, those guys, holy crap, they're so fast. But yeah, I won. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there, there was a couple of guys that when you're in the group and you see what they're doing on these motorcycles painting these curly black lines out of the corners i don't think i was doing that i just had a good motorcycle it's stable it's fast stays in line and if it shifts gears i can win on it you just so. went fast i mean you said it it's about the motorcycle right and, and the old bikes without the electronics and anything else i remember doing saying yeah, you can you can go around a corner painting a line, or you can go around a corner fast. <laughs> yeah. That's the name of the game. I think we're in out of questions. Yeah, we, we could talk a lot more about the season and, and yeah, different, I, but I think it's time to let people go to bed. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. We got we got him here. We're yeah, we're we're an hour and a half into it, so we we can still go. <laughs> so what are you what are you working on now i mean you, you're about to get everything together and go to daytona right yeah we have uh melissa's gonna run court of ventura on an r7 in twins cup they are racing at daytona also um 
we are collaborating with another group. They're going to do the Daytona 200 with me. Melissa's going to crew chief it. Um, Melissa is also managing and running the build train race program for Royal Enfield. Not yeah. quite sure who I'm going to be coaching and who I'm not going to be coaching. Um, we got the au pair from France coming in tomorrow, trying to get our house back together so that we can get her in there. Um, been pedaling every day or riding motocross. So I've got motocross bikes that I haven't had time to service and bicycles that I got to go fix so we can ride tomorrow. Yeah. It's just a, a never ending uh, comedy of events that I have to try to keep up with. <laughs> so you're not going to sit on the back porch anytime soon, drinking tea, looking into uh, the field, no. going like, oh, that was a good life. No, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to get some training in every day. That's my goal. I get up every morning. Uh, our, our son doesn't sleep. So the last couple of nights, our, our dogs had a bad stomach. So I got up five times between 11 and 2 to take the dog out. And then our son came and got me at 2.30 and made me go lay in bed with him. So I woke up with a broken back when he woke up at about 6.15 and he doesn't know how to be quiet. So I just get up and I feed the dog and I start making him breakfast and getting his uh, lunch together for school and try to let Melissa get a little bit of sleep because she's up every three hours with the baby to feed the baby. And... Um, I'm lucky if I get Hawk to school by nine, which means I can't start pedaling until 10 when I get back and can get all my shit together. Gone for three hours on the bicycle. I come home and she's got work for me to do. <laughs> then I got to go pick up Hawk <laughs> from school, get him some chicken nuggets or something on the way home. I, I, I tell you, I tell you, do. I tell you, I can make, <laughs> you can make some time by uh, taking, switching dogs with Nabil because you don't have to let Nabil's dog out. Because it goes in the house. <laughs> I was just thinking I might try a cocaine, see if that helps. <laughs> Get some weight off and have some energy. You you want the best type of exercise? Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Mm. You know, I almost had to start doing that. Melissa started doing that a couple of years ago and came home. She's like, hey, let me show you what I learned today. Yeah. And I realized that I was going to have to defend myself at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gal's pretty big in that. So, so is Hawk, uh, when, actually, I should ask, when is Hawk going to start racing? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. That kid, he's a turd. <laughs> he's, uh, he, he rides incredible. Like, seriously, he's, he was on a on a uh, an Osset electric trials bike at like 16 months, and I got him a PW. It's uncorked. He rides it on the oval in the backyard, locks up the brakes, and backs it in. And then he was just like, "Yeah, I don't want to ride." And so he, I don't think he's been on it in eight or nine months. So, no interest whatsoever. Can't convince him to do it. So. I figured he's four. Everything's a phase. Eventually, he'll come around and want to go ride his dirt bike. So. Yeah. How could you not when you have all this fun opportunities right in your backyard? Yeah. And it's probably that's probably half of it. It's too easy for him, you know? So, I don't I don't care what he does. I just want him to, whatever, whatever he chooses, 
hopefully it's something he's passionate about and is willing to to work as hard as I was to to for whatever it is that he wants, you know. Well, if he's got his half his dad's work ethic, I think he'll be successful whatever he chooses. Well, I appreciate that. Man. I tried hard. I wasn't afraid of work. And um, like I said, I, I think I played a lot of the right mind games to keep myself focused at the right times. So it's not always easy to do. My wife had to tell me a couple of times, get your shit together. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember uh, Fast Track about a year ago, you guys were in the trailer and I walk in to say hello and you guys had something going on. I'm like, all right, time to step away. We don't really have too many big fights, man. We're, we're pretty solid. We at least know we're a team, you know, it's us against them. Damn kids. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, they, they'll outlive you. So you, you already uh, lost. <laughs> yeah. No, that's, yeah. They're going to outlive me a lot the rate they're going. <laughs> I mean, as old as I am, I'm, he's going to be a teenager when I need my butt wiped. So. Uh, yeah. He won't be in college, so you can still make him work. Starting in my mid-40s. Everybody's like, oh, it's so great that you did it later in life. Probably so much more patient. And I'm like, you have lost your fucking mind. Like... <laughs> Because I lived a long, selfish lifestyle. This is a hard transition. So, um, with your motivation, I'm sure you'll put in fantastic work for these kids. No doubt. I hope so. I feel like I'm failing right now. They don't get the best parts of me because I'm too tired all the time. Go, <laughs> <So>. Kane. <laughs> Hopefully, it gets better. Hopefully, it gets better. All right, fellas. Well, I appreciate you guys with this. Thanks for being so gracious with your time, and you don't you don't have a lot of it, but you seem to be very generous with it. Yeah, I appreciate it. I hope uh, hope your podcast is a success. Thank you. Thank we got, you. Wait, we got a big name. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> I hope. And tell me wait. Tell me who it is so I can listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I hope you have a good long night of sound sleep. Yeah, I'm going to go give that a shot. <laughs> All right, so let me you see. You guys that. have a good night. You too. Thanks again, Josh. Thank you. Take have care. a great we'll Bye. And I'm sure we'll see you around Bye. the track, especially Fontana. I'll be there. Yeah. I'll All be right. There. Friday.